Welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. We're very happy that you're here with us. Now, we're getting close to the end of Galatians. As Joshua mentioned a few moments ago, we're going to finish the book next week. And sometimes when you get to the end of one of Paul's letters, Paul can come across as a little bit erratic, and he seems almost scatterbrained in his writing. He'll spend so much of his letters making these impressive theological arguments, mining deep down into the Old Testament for relevant texts, and addressing these complex practical concerns within the church. Paul writes at a high level for so much of his letters, at least until you get to the end. And at the end of his letters, Paul's comments may come across as random. They sometimes appear to have little rhyme or reason. They're just tacked on to the end, disconnected from everything he wrote earlier. And because of that, we're often tempted to skim right through the last chapter of one of Paul's letters. We assume that we've covered all the important stuff, and by the time we get to the end, we probably aren't missing very much. But Paul still has valuable things to say at the end of his letters, and that's certainly true in the book of Galatians. He still has more helpful teachings to offer them and to offer us today. Now, last week we talked about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Paul challenged us to keep in step with the Spirit, who God has graciously given us by faith in Christ. Paul said that we're called to leave behind the old works of sin and death, and instead embark down the new path of holiness and life. Now, of course, we'll still wrestle with old sins that will never truly go away in this life. But at the same time, because we have the Spirit, we should slowly but surely become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. We should become more Spirit-filled. And God expects us to bear this fruit of the Spirit because He's enabled us to bear this fruit. The fruit of the Spirit serves to identify us as Jesus' disciples to our fellow believers and to the world around us. So the fruit of the Spirit that we read last week is not just a list of some suggested good habits or positive attitudes. The truth is that if you claim to be a believer in Christ and the fruit isn't there at all, then something is wrong. Now, the fruit of the Spirit might not sound flashy. It might not sound exciting all the time. But it's essential. Because the fruit of the Spirit sustains us through the grind of everyday Christian life in a fallen world. But as we pick up today, Paul puts some meat on the bones of what we talked about last week. In our passage this morning... He gives concrete examples of how the fruit of the Spirit plays out in the context of a church family. I think Paul's kind of, sort of asking, what does a fruitful church look like? How do we practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control within a church? In other words, how can you tell If a church is obeying Paul's command to walk in step with the Spirit. 
So with that, open up to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here and also look on the screen. Most of our verses will be up there too. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, thank you for the privilege of reading your word. I pray that we would learn from it. I pray that we would understand it better. And I pray that we would even seek to apply it in our everyday lives for your glory. And Father, thank you for the privilege of preaching. Um, I pray that your word and your spirit would do the heavy lifting, uh, that our hearts and our minds would be changed, not by a person, not by rhetoric, not by a speaker, but by your word and by your spirit. And Father, I pray for this church. Any time you have 100 or 120 people gathering together, there are numerous things that we bring with us. There are challenges and frustrations and concerns and stresses that we bring with us when we walk through the doors. And we might not even know uh, everything that's going on in each person's life. Um, But Father, I pray for these people. I pray that you would encourage them and challenge them and convict them where needed. And I pray that this church would simply be the kind of church that you call us to be, that we would be a spirit-filled and fruitful church, and that we would put that on display by the way we do things here. We love you. We give you all the glory. Thank you for Christ. How marvelous and, and how wonderful he is, and how marvelous and how wonderful it is that he died for our sins and rose from the grave. We thank you for him, and we give you all the glory. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start by reading Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, and then we'll come back to verses 1 through 9. Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So in that verse, Paul uses that phrase, household of faith. When he uses that phrase, he's referring to a church. And he uses a similar phrase in 1 Timothy and Titus. In those letters, he refers to the church as the household of God. So when Paul uses phrases like household of faith and household of God, he's basically saying that the church is a family. I mean, think about it. It's a group of people referring to God as their father and referring to each other as brothers and sisters. A household of God is more than just a social club, an interest group, or a collection of acquaintances. A church is a family. A church is a household of faith, with God as the head of it. And through faith in Christ, we've been adopted into God's eternal family. That's the big C church. But then God, in his grace, has given us a local family to call home, a local church. But then also in verse 10, Paul says that we are to do good to all people. And that means exactly what it sounds like. We're to do good to everybody. We are to seek what's best for every person that we meet, whether or not they look like us, act like us, sound like us, or believe like us. That's not anything new. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and Paul quoted that last week. And when we say our neighbor, we're referring to anybody. 
However, while we are to do good to all people, Paul closes verse 10 by saying that we have a particular responsibility to do good to those in the household of faith. We have a particular responsibility to do good to our church family. Our brothers and sisters in Christ should have a special priority. Again, we serve and love everyone. But those within the household of faith are the primary beneficiaries of our efforts. They're the ones who benefit most when you and me and everyone else in this room bears the fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at some concrete examples of how we can do good within the household of faith. Some common ways that we can practice the fruit of the Spirit within our church family. So that takes us back to verse 1. Paul says there, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So I think we see here our first example of a fruitful church. A church walking in step with the Spirit. And that is a church that practices healthy accountability. If you see a member of your church family caught in sin, Paul tells you to address it. And conversely, if someone sees you caught in sin of your own, they should feel free to address it with you. Now, it's all to be done in a spirit of gentleness, which not coincidentally Gentleness is one of the traits mentioned last week in the fruit of the Spirit. But of course, accountability has to be valued and accepted by everyone if it's going to work. It has to be reciprocal. It takes two to tango. Every person has to want and value accountability. Jesus talks about accountability in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. He says there, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In this well-known but often misunderstood passage, Jesus isn't saying that we're never allowed to talk to anybody about sin. That's often how we understand it. We read this passage and think, okay, I'm never allowed to judge anybody for anything. I'm never allowed to call somebody else out on their sin. But that is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that we can't hold someone else accountable for their sin if we refuse to be held accountable for our own. That would be as ridiculous as pointing out the speck in your neighbor's eye while conveniently overlooking the log in your own eye. He says that's not accountability. That is hypocrisy. If you're unwilling to confront your own sin, You have no leg to stand on when it comes to confronting the sins of others. And if you do try to hold someone else accountable for their sin while sweeping yours under the rug, then you won't be able to see clearly to help them. You'll ultimately do more harm than good. 
German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Reproof is unavoidable. God's word demands it when a brother or sister falls into open sin. The practice of discipline within the congregation begins in the smallest circles, where defection from God's word and doctrine or life imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation. The word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. Words like reproof and admonition and rebuke, those are words that all have to do with accountability. But then listen to this part of the quote. He adds, Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that leaves another to his sin. I'll read that again. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that leaves another to his sin. And then he finishes with, Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother or sister back from the path of sin. So healthy accountability happens when we gently nudge each other back in step with the Spirit when our feet begin to wander from the path. And to do anything less than that is not loving, is not tender, is not compassionate. To sit back and watch our brother or sister in Christ destroy themselves through sin, to sit back and watch and say nothing is nothing less than cruel. It isn't loving. But then before we move on, I think this verse can be helpful in differentiating between being judgmental and practicing accountability. So, for example, the judgmental person is arrogant. They think they're immune from falling into that kind of sin. But Paul tells us to humbly and carefully recognize that we, too, can be tempted. That's accountability. The judgmental person isn't gentle. They're harsh and they're unforgiving. The judgmental person doesn't want the sinner to be restored. They are perfectly content to see them condemned. The judgmental person is the one refusing to acknowledge the log in their own eye while scrutinizing the speck in somebody else's eye. So a fruitful church is one that values healthy accountability but can also resist the temptation to fall into hypocritical judgment. But let's move on to Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says there, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. And not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So like any family, a household of faith functions best when all of its members are serving in some way. When everyone is pulling their weight in whatever unique ways they can. But what's even better is when members of a family help to bear each other's burdens. When one member of the family is weak, another member of the family comes in and helps. That's a mark of a strong and unified family. And in verse 2, Paul argues that it's also a mark of a faithful church, a church walking in step with the Spirit. Every person in a household of faith, every person in this particular church has strengths and weaknesses. 
And at one point or another, we all go through times of success and times of hardship. But in the household of faith, it isn't every man for himself. We do not carry our burdens alone. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In other words, bear each other's burdens. And it truly is humbling and inspiring to be part of a church where brothers and sisters in Christ bear each other's burdens. If you've been part of this church for long, you've probably helped someone else carry their burden. And you've probably had someone else help you carry yours. Whether it's simply being present to suffer and weep with a fellow believer during a time of hardship. Whether it's a meal to those healing from an illness or surgery or loss. Whether it's a simple word of encouragement to someone who's struggling or simply praying from a distance. It is nothing short of glorious to see a fruitful church in action. It is nothing short of glorious to see brothers and sisters in Christ bearing each other's burdens. And you know, sometimes that comes specifically in the form of financial generosity. And that appears to be what Paul is talking about in verse 6. In context, he's likely referring to churches paying their pastors. And that may have been a problem in Galatia, but it's not a problem here. This church takes great care of its paid leaders. They help us bear our burdens. That way we can serve the church. And I think I speak for all of us in saying that we're all grateful for it. But then I also think you can take it a step further and say, you know, it's a privilege to see Christians here bearing each other's burdens through generosity. Whether it's through a job loss or unexpected medical bills or any other sudden financial hardship. I've seen it time and time again where a member of this church has stepped up to help a fellow believer. Sometimes we've been the beneficiaries of it and sometimes we see other people benefiting from it. And it truly is glorious. It truly is a thing of beauty when we bear each other's burdens. But then on a quick side note, what about verses 3 and 4? Verses 3 and 4 are somewhat hard to understand, right in the middle of all this talk about bearing burdens and carrying loads. Well, I think Paul might be referring to the temptation that we face to compare ourselves to each other. And that temptation could be particularly strong in a church that actually practices accountability. A church that's actually open and honest about the sins that we wrestle with and the faults that we have and the burdens that we carry. Think about it this way. Your family members know things about you that no one else does, whether you like it or not. And we often prefer to keep it that way. But a fruitful church... A church where we're walking in step with the Spirit. That's a church where we can be open and honest and vulnerable with each other. Not keeping our faults and our sins and our burdens private because we're scared of being looked down upon or pushed away. Not a church where we run away the second someone tries to talk to us about a sin or a burden or a fault. In a fruitful church, we don't size each other up to see who's more holy. And thus become more full of ourselves. We remember that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
and that we're all saved by grace. We remember that I don't need God's grace any less than you do. And you don't need it any less than I do. So we hold each other accountable and we bear each other's burdens, knowing that we all have them. But then let's look at verse 7. Again, Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So as we get close to the end of the passage, Paul brings up this analogy of reaping and sowing. Now, what do you think he's talking about? When we hear the phrase reaping and sowing, we might think about, my name is Earl, karma. That if we do good things, the universe will reward us. If we do bad things, the universe will punish us. And we often use that phrase in the same way. Do good things and you'll be all right. Do bad things and you'll regret it. Now, that might be somewhat relevant to what Paul's arguing here. But he's also telling us much more than that. Paul's talking about eternal life. There's that phrase in verse 7 where he says that God is not mocked. When we hear that phrase, God is not mocked, it sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? But when Paul uses that phrase, he's saying that God's judgment is always right. God's judgment is always good. And when it comes to eternal life, God won't be rewarded into rewarding, tricked into rewarding sin, rather. God won't accidentally punish his children. God won't get it wrong. So in a way, that phrase that God is not mocked, it's both a warning and an encouragement at the same time. Because look at it this way. If you're a member of God's family by faith in Christ, it's an encouragement that you can rejoice that God is not mocked. You can rejoice that you won't be forgotten. You won't be left out in eternity. But then if you don't believe in Christ, I think that phrase can become a warning. Because if you don't believe in Christ, it's humbling to remember that you can't trick God in eternity. That he sees all. That he knows all. And that in the end, you will reap what you sow. And if you reap according to the flesh, then you will face judgment. In that sense, God is not mocked. But then if you look at verse 9, you'll see another mark of a church walking in step with the Spirit. A fruitful church helps its members to endure to the end. Now, I don't know much about farming, but I do know that it takes time. You can't just drop a seed in the ground today and then reap a harvest tomorrow. There's an awful lot of patience and attention required before you start to see any meaningful reward whatsoever. And what's true of farming is also true of the Christian life. And a fruitful church is one where we help each other patiently wait and patiently endure to the end. One where we help each other persevere to the prize that Christ has secured for us. You know, in this life, we will often do good 
and yet not be rewarded. In fact, maybe more often than not. But Paul tells us not to give up. We encourage each other to keep in step with the Spirit, knowing that in the end, God will not get anything wrong. God will not be mocked. Those who have the Spirit will be saved. Those who believe in Christ will be saved. And all that fruit of the Spirit that we're bearing is not in vain. By faith in Christ, we know for sure that we will inherit eternal life. So at its best, a church family, a household of faith, it's the place where we hold each other accountable, where we bear each other's burdens, where we help each other endure to the end. And I think if you look closely, you can see the fruit of the Spirit in all of these. We hold each other accountable out of love. Remember the quote earlier that nothing can be more cruel, nothing can be more unloving than leaving a brother or sister in Christ to their sin. We spur each other on to goodness. We spur each other on to self-control. And we do it all with a spirit of gentleness. And then we bear each other's burdens with joy that we might find peace even in the midst of trials. And we encourage each other not to give up, to be faithful to Christ over the long haul, and to look forward with patience to the gift of eternal life. And then naturally, of course, we keep our eyes on Christ every step along the way. Like we read last week in John 15, Christ is the vine and we are the branches. And only by abiding in him can we bear fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So we never forget that it's because of his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection that we are privileged to be part of God's family, that we can call him our father. And then on top of that, it's because of Christ that we have the gift to be part of a household of faith, to be part of a church, to have brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we're not related to them. Christ is our Savior and Christ is our Lord, but Christ is also our example to imitate. Think about it this way. Christ is the perfect example of accountability in the sense that he confronts us with our sin, but he does it with truth, gentleness, and compassion all at the same time. He's the ultimate example of bearing the burdens of others because he bore the burden of our sin on the cross. And he's the perfect example of faithfulness because he was faithful unto death and will be faithful to his promise to return. So may we in the church, believers in Christ, people who possess the Holy Spirit, may we bear fruit for his glory. May we do the things that Paul listed this morning. Hold each other accountable, bear each other's burdens, and encourage each other not to grow weary of following Christ, not to give up. And may we be more like Christ day in and day out. And as we have opportunity, do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. As a church, let's walk in step with the Spirit. I know we can do it. God is faithful and kind to us. That's what we're here for. So let's encourage each other along the way. Let's pray.
Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your word. And again, I pray that we would take this word this morning and put it into practice, that we as individual people would bear the fruit of the Spirit for your glory, for the good of everyone around us. But I also pray that we would take special care to love and serve and seek the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would be the kind of church that walks in step with the Spirit, that when people walk through this church's doors for the first time, they would see the fruit of the Spirit on display, that they would see a church that is loving and kind and gentle and patient and self-controlled and good, all the things that we talked about last week. And again, I pray that we would do this all for your glory. We are saved by your grace through faith in Christ. We aren't saved through works of the law. We aren't saved by being Jewish enough. We aren't saved by our own attempts at being moral. We're saved by your grace. And we're given your spirit by your grace. So, Father, may we leave here and bear fruit for your glory for the good of everyone we encounter, but especially for the good of the household of faith. We love you. We thank you for your kindness and your patience and your grace, that you are the perfect example of the fruit of the Spirit. I pray that we would live those out ourselves by your power. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.